Welcome to the Wonder Years podcast, where we discuss principles and practices of nurturing a quiet growing time for children in the early years. In the midst of life's duties and delights, we can cultivate a richly humane life of truth, goodness, and beauty that feeds even the littlest of souls. I am your host, Amanda Foss, and together with my co-host, Brooke Johnson, we invite you to join us as we talk about how to craft homes that lead our children from wonder to worship to wisdom to work for the glory of God and the good of mankind. Let us make the education of the youths our own education and go further up and further in together. Hey ladies, you are in for a real treat in today's episode. We had a special guest on to talk about the different ways children learn from a classical perspective. We will plumb a depth far beyond what you may expect, but stick with us and you will be greatly blessed by these powerful living ideas. It is my prayer that through this episode, you will be gifted a vision to guard, treasure, and cultivate your children's childhood. If you head to the Wonder Years Substack, you will find a general outline of our discussion along with detailed show notes that include all the major quotations. Also, I wanted to mention that the Awakening Wonder webinar on the habit of attention that I am doing with Autumn Kern of the Commonplace is just five days away. And even if you're catching this episode months from now, it was live or later, so you could still head over to the Commonplace shop and purchase it now. In today's episode, we briefly hit on how maternal sympathy is such an essential part of raising up our children. And then in the Awakening Wonder webinar, we're actually going to be diving deeply into how sympathy is a lever by which we can draw our children's attention toward the good, the true, and the beautiful. So I really hope you can join us. And now, on to today's episode. The little human animal will not at first have the right responses. It must be trained to feel pleasure, liking, disgust, and hatred at those things which really are pleasant, likable, disgusting, and hateful. In the Republic, the well-nurtured youth is one who would see most clearly whatever was amiss in ill-made works of man or ill-grown works of nature, and with a just distaste would blame and hate the ugly, even from his earliest years and would give delighted praise to beauty, receiving it into his soul and being nourished by it, so that he becomes a man of gentle heart. All this before he is the age of reason, so that when reason at length comes to him, then, bred as he has been, he will hold out his hand in welcome and recognize her because of the affinity he bears to her. C.S. Lewis, Abolition of Man. God bless you and good day. Welcome to the Wonder Years podcast. This is Amanda. I am here today by myself, but for a very exciting episode because I have a guest with me, Alec Bianco. Alec, can you say hi? Hi, thank you very much for having me. Alec is the director of curriculum from the Searcy Institute. He received his bachelor's from St. John's College in, that's in Maryland, correct? Mm -hmm. Maryland, where he studied the great books. He is currently pursuing a master's in theology from the Antiochian House of Studies, he is happily married and considers mathematics and music a significant part of the good life. Amen. It is. You can find him on Twitter, slash X. What are we calling? I can't call it X. It's too confusing. <laughs> you can find him on there at Alec, let's see, Alec M. Bianco. Um, thank you for being here today, Alec. It's good to have you. Yeah. Thank you so much, Amanda. I'm glad to be here. It's exciting. Okay, so I invited you on this podcast because I saw you on Twitter. You had done a thread on classical pedagogy, and you made some very interesting comments that caught my attention, um, and you were describing basically this idea that classical education is not a, a system, right? It's not a step-by-step, -step, oh, here's the five steps to have an educated person, but that it's a way. 
Um, and so, or the word you used in that was modes. So I'm definitely going to want you to unpack that for us. Um, but you talked about how it is a way of apprehending knowledge that connects to the kind of knowledge we are seeking. So could you just give us a summary of the modes of knowledge that you had said in that tweet, and then just describe that process for us, beginning from the early years up until they become an adult? Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a lot um, to sort of unpack in a brief moment, but I'll do my best to provide a brief overview, and then hopefully we can dig into it more deeply. Uh, but yeah, so I think that what one of the main things, like you mentioned, that is characteristic of a classical education versus um, what's really a novel form of education. Classical education is basically what it just used to be called education. Uh, and, and now it's resurfaced as this sort of new thing, uh, which is interesting because in reality, it's the way it always has been. And there's something more new, more novel about the modern approach to education. So that being said, one of the primary differentiators between the two is this emphasis on, there's a lot of different words for it, uh, holistic, uh, humane, uh, that, that define a classical education. Uh, personally, I believe that it's marked uh, it should be defined more in the context of a spiritual reality. And that reality, as we call it, is the spiritual life. It is the divine. That's real. And that this world is a beautiful taste of what is to come. And that there are these moments in time, we see it especially on Sundays, where the divine comes down to us and we get to meet Christ in that moment. And in that moment, the Greek word for that time is keros. So the time that we normally live in is chronos, and that's the time that's demarcated by minutes and hours. Keros is the eternal time. It's the time that God is in. It's the alpha and the omega, right? And it's in the liturgy that we participate in keros. And what's the beautiful thing about classical education is that when you focus on poetic learning, on mimetic learning, on dialectic or Socratic learning and contemplative, you begin to see a movement from Kronos into Keros, a movement from this earthly time into the divine time, the eternal time. And that's all we can hope for for our children, right? Is to meet Christ face to face, like the little children that he says, come to me. That's what we want for our little kids. So if, you know, the, the goal, <laughs> I don't want it to sound too pietistic or sentimental, but the goal of a classical education is the salvation of our students. Um, and it's by the grace of Christ that that is accomplished. And we can aid in that, make it more um, fertile ground, our souls more fertile ground to receive his message by giving them opportunities to think in the divine, in the divine time, outside of this earthly time. Kids are already really, really good at it because they have no concept of hours and days anyways. You know, They don't want to go to bed because time's endless. And yeah. we, we, we inflict time on them by making them go to bed, right? <laughs> so, or clean your room or 
you know, finish your breakfast, right? All of these things are our imposing time, which is, we have to, but imposing time on their, I always say kids, um, they naturally understand the infinite. And then they grow up and they start understanding the finite. And then the goal is to eventually go back around to the infinite. And you know, everything you're saying, you know, I'm thinking of like the average mom listening to this. And on the one hand, she might have just heard a lot of words that she has no concept for yet, mm -hmm. which is why we're doing this episode, because you're going to explain a lot of those concepts. But at the same time, I think what you're saying will still resonate because mothers, especially I think homeschool moms, which is primarily the audience of this podcast, our whole life is aimed at pointing them to Christ. Yes. And that's really what you're talking about. You're talking about a life where not just while it begins and is most epitomized in the Sunday morning, it does not end on the Sunday morning. And right. that orientation towards Christ fills up our whole life. And the, the school, the public edu education system, or even many homeschools, though, many other just uh, educational philosophies besides classical education can be incredibly utilitarian, mm -hmm. incredibly work-oriented, and um, just productivity-oriented. And what you're describing is so, so much more beautiful and like you said, so much more humane because it is this invitation to live a life where there is no sacred secular divide, where we can, yeah. from our children's beginning, invite them into this spiritual life. I just, I love what you're saying. That's so good. Yeah, thank you. And I think what you said is, uh, it hits the nail on the head, which is that I don't want to create a false dichotomy between work and play, between sacred and secular, right? those things exist in harmony. We are supposed to work and we are supposed to not always play. Uh, we are supposed to live in the world and, but be not of it. That's what Christ says, right? And that, I think that's the key is, is how do you create that harmonic living? Um, and it's always, it's always gonna be a battle, always gonna be a battle but it's worth fighting and it's worth remembering because I, I think one of the greatest joys of being a classical education parent is that you get to um, participate in that journey with your children. And yes. I mean, last night, uh, me and my two girls, we were, uh, this is going to, I'm just going to out myself as a dork really early on in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All the best classical men are yeah, <laughs> starting yeah. with my husband. <laughs> so I, um, we've been reading The Little Prince before bed, which is a little bit of a, of a lengthier children's book, uh, but I'll take breaks every once in a while because I want to read something else. So last night I decided to read um, the beginning of Sir Isaac Newton's Principia, which is his, astronaut, his work on astronomy, and it's college level stuff. And my four and six-year-old, um, you know, I'm just reading the first four definitions. They don't know that. <laughs> they don't know that, right. And it's okay because we can just do it really slowly and just talk through the first definition and then the second. And we got through four before their minds were just, you know, lost in play. Uh, but that's okay. And it was just really beautiful because it was amazing how quickly they were able to ascertain the ideas. But they were putting it in their, in their experiences, which I, I think connects to what we're about to talk about, which is the different pedagog uh, pedagogical perspective. Um, but they, they, you know, so one of them was about measuring matter. 
uh, definitions concerning measure, the measure of matter, the quantity of matter, which is density and volume. And Serafina, who's six years old, she thought, immediately thought of scooping flour in a measuring cup, which is just beautiful, right? Because she's, you know, helps uh, bake bread or, you know, whatever around the house every once in a while. Um, and then, of course, the next definition is about the measuring of motion. And so she thinks of running in the jungle and falling into a quicksand. <laughs> so, you know, not something that happens on a daily basis at our household, but it's just, uh, you know, a fun illustration of a real life illustration of the fact that children can understand these bigger concepts, but they're going to understand them in the way that they, they can, which is through their, their own life experiences or through stories that they've read or watched or or whatever. And both of those happened. Part of it was a personal experience in the kitchen. And the next one was a part of a story or cartoon that she watched, right? So I'm not ashamed to admit that my children every once in a while watch TV. Uh, <laughs> Mine do too. So I okay, think we'll, we'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not one of those trads quite yet. <laughs> um, Give it 10 years though. Just kidding. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So anyways, it's, it's beautiful to see the, the minds of children thinking um, in every little thing. And, and, and I sort of, as a last point on that, I suppose an exhortation, uh, children are capable, far more capable than we are, than we understand or are willing to admit. Again, why I said that it seems to me that children naturally understand the infinite they don't express ideas in the way that we might want or expect but that doesn't mean that they don't have some kind of understanding and that i think is why poetic knowledge is so critical as an understanding which is completely absent from modern education there is no concept of poetic knowledge or poetic learning or poetic teaching it's completely absent because it doesn't exist for them, because they don't admit of it. It's all mechanical. It's all part of the industry and the machine learning. The fact that we invent, the human brain invented computers, and then we turned around and said that the brain is just a computer shows both our simplicity and dullness as humans, and also <laughs> uh, the fact that we are arrogant. You know, I mean, we, God gave us something that's far transcends a computer such, such that we were able to even create the things that, you know, you and I are using to, to record this podcast. You know, it's beautiful. And then we turn around and think that we're, you know, not even as smart as it. It's just crazy. Um, and, and, and we do that with our children on a constant basis. We do not take them seriously. We do not respect them. And that is a shame because we need to have more respect for our children um, as little image bearers and as humans, fully human. I think this is uh, the point that Charlotte Mason makes abundantly clear from the very beginning of some of her works that these are humans, they are people, persons who are capable of understanding and learning. Um, and in many ways, I think if we were truly willing to to humble ourselves are far wiser than us 
in many ways. Become well, like little children. Yes, exactly yeah. right. So I have, a, I have a lot to learn from <laughs> my four and six-year-old, but I don't know. Well, it's like you said, I, I think most homeschool moms, the, the, the initial maybe thought when we take on this task, um, I was homeschooled, so it wasn't necessarily as um, big of a leap for me, but I know many first-time homeschoolers, they feel this jump of like, oh, how can I, how can I do this? I can't do this. And then there's a little bit of a, a piece that comes when you realize, oh, I'm learning alongside them. Like mm-hmm. I get to recover this. And then to your point, not only am I recovering my own education alongside of them as I'm giving them this new education that hopefully is the old education of classical education, but at the same time, I'm learning from them because yeah. Christ has called me to have the humility and the love and the curiosity and interest in his creation that a child naturally still possesses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, well put. It's it's so amazing. It can be aggravating, yeah, raising raising kids. Uh, <laughs> but it, that 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 sense of the infinite can drive us mad because we don't have the luxury of not having to work and only having to play, right? So we have to think about schedules and time and commitments and responsibilities, etc and children don't have to and we i I don't want them to have to right but (laughs) but there are times when they need to and so that's where the friction can occur and we have to figure out as first as parents and second as teachers how because i think this applies too for you know in school you know with uh with private schools or public schools with teachers with with children that aren't that aren't necessarily your own, it's the same thing. That friction can occur where, you know, you're trying to maintain commitments and responsibilities, and they're just trying to bathe in the infinite pool of cosmic, you know, life, right? It's just reality. <laughs> rea- yeah, they live in reality. We don't live in reality. We live in this uh, symbolic world. There's a famous philosopher and thinker, uh, Jacob Klein. He was the dean of the of St. John's College in the 30s and 40s and helped establish the Great Books program there. And when, one of the things that he talks about is this, this idea that modern man has an algebraic mind. And what he's referring to is Descartes. Descartes' distinction between mind and body, between matter and thought. And sort of, he sort of traces the history of mathematics to see to today that we've actually unconsciously taken that idea to an extreme such that our minds actually think algebraically. Uh, And what he means is, is symbolically in the sense that we're completely disattached from the real world and everything to us is a symbol of something else. And this is very contrary to the concept of poetic knowledge. Not because there's no such thing as abstractions or there's no such thing as symbols. Rather, that that is not our first encounter, right? So children, their first encounter is with the real world. They struggle with abstractions, with symbols. 
because, I mean, an example of that is counting, right? They think in counting on fingers or counting apples or counting the number of objects on the, and even that's difficult. If they aren't all the same thing, they find it difficult to count them. You know, it needs to be six cups. It can't be a cup and a pencil and an eraser and leftover sandwich from breakfast. You know, it, it's, it becomes difficult for them because that's the next level of abstraction. So I think I've completely derailed your uh, outline here. That's okay. Don't even worry about it. This is great. This is, you know, so you're, what you're getting at is where we're going with this, which is what poetic knowledge is. So why don't you just start there? Because everything you've just said obviously makes perfect sense in light of poetic knowledge. So just start us off easy. What is poetic knowledge? Yeah. 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 I start off easy. That's a, <laughs> a hard question. Yeah. Um, I believe poetic knowledge, the book, which I would recommend to anybody, um, but fair warning, it's, it's, it was a doctoral thesis dissertation. So right. it's, it is not, it's not readable in a, you know, easy sort of understandable way. Um, so take time with it, read one page at a time, and ideally read it with friends. Um, but yeah, so he, he didn't invent it. I don't even think he coined the term, but Taylor expounds on the idea, I think, beautifully in that, in that book. And the idea is that poetic knowledge is the concept of learning through experience and learning through the world that we live in and that children primarily i i want to be careful as we go into this to not suggest that children learn in stages this is sort of a pervasive myth within classical education um i think it's a misunderstanding of dorothy sayer's essay I don't think she's actually suggesting that kids are that robotic. Uh, if she but, could have seen what would happen. <laughs> I know, I know. She would, she would be, a, I think she'd be a little upset. Uh, <laughs> but so, so just to clarify, these are not stages, although they do sort of interestingly track with age. So in a sense. Do you think it might be better to say it's like laying foundations? Because I think of it as like, in my mind, that like when you talk about poetic knowledge, that is a baby has poetic mm-hmm. knowledge and no, like not necessarily any other type of ability ways to know yet. Um, but it's not that they will ever cease as a human being from poetic knowledge, but it's incorporating other modes in, or is that even not a, an ideal way of thinking of it? I, I don't think that that's bad, but I, I want to, I, I think a, perhaps a better illustration might be to think of additions to a home. It's a house of many mansions. You're adding rooms. So it's the same structure, but you're adding rooms and you're expanding it. So it doesn't create this sense of reliance upon the other in order for it to occur. Because even in Taylor's explanations of things, you'll see that mimetic teaching and poetic teaching learning seem to um, coincide To the point where some people within classical education argue that they're the same thing. But I personally don't don't think that that's correct. 
I think that there is a distinction. I just think they're extremely harmonically related. And, and that's why I like the idea of expansion. Um, because poetic knowledge and mimetic knowledge, and even dialectic, I, I believe I called it Socratic in my thread, um, which is a fine name for it, but it's an homage to Socrates. Uh, but dialectic is probably a better name for it. Um, all three of these are related and in some ways overlap and interplay and intermix, cross-pollinate, whatever you want to say. Um, it, it, they all are related. But that being said, there is a sense in which poetic knowledge comes before all of them. And I think the way in which it comes before all of them is in the sense that, one, we see it with little children. Um, you know, the, the, a baby is born and its first, its first experience is with the mother and her face and her eyes. And there, I think there's plenty of scientific, scientific studies um, to... Oh, I, this is audio. I am uh, <laughs> quotes around scientific. Using strong air quotes. <laughs> uh, quote unquote scientific not, uh, studies on this, but I think that they serve a purpose. And you know that you know the eyes are really really important. Maintaining eye contact, um, skin contact, voice. If the you know all all of these things, and these are extremely. They're connatural they're they're biologically imminent um things that happen experiences that happen to the child and to the parent you know there's a there's a huge change that occurs when you have your first child um and you now look at the world very differently because you're looking at it with the sympathetic perspective of the child now whereas before you didn't or couldn't and now you have to and now you think of, you, you notice the sharp edges of the table, which you never noticed before, unless you stubbed your shin on it, uh, <laughs> right? So these, these things are very, I think they're all connected to this idea of poetic knowledge. And it's a difficult concept because one, I think we were, most of us were brought up within a modern educational perspective. And so how do you quantify poetic knowledge? How do you assess that on a quiz? You can't. You can't. <laughs> you can't. And that's why I, I think Taylor, Dr. Taylor, uses the illustration from, who's the author, uh, with Gradgrind and the student and the horse. Oh, yes. Um, Charles Dickens. Dickens, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. David Copperfield. That's right. That's right. And it's a beautiful story because you know, the child, the, the young lady who grew up with the horses on the farm, she knows, right, what a horse is. But she never learned all of the, the sort of categorical, systematic understanding of them. And so she lost, she wasn't able to complete his quiz in any sort of meaningful sense to him. But she had a more meaningful experience with the horse. Is that not knowledge? According to Gradgrind, it would not be. But that's not true and it's not how we live in the world because um, otherwise how did, how does life keep on turning if people didn't go get their PhDs from Oxford you know and only a select few of us do so which is a good thing 
Now, again, I want to make sure I'm not constantly creating a dichotomy because it's very easy to do that. Um, it's very easy to poo-poo on modern education too, and there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. It's just something that we have to you know, wrestle with. And are we doing the right thing? We're doing the best thing for our kid, I suppose, not just the bare minimum. So I think I have not adequately described what poetic knowledge is. So let me try again. <laughs> it is... <laughs> It is this summative experience of the world that exists in, I, I think I'd like to call it this, I think Taylor uses it, I think you mentioned that, this sympathetic knowledge. Um, and I think that that's a really beautiful way of putting it uh, because it implies a sort of soul to soul experience. And I think another phrase he uses is sensory emotional. Mm. What do you think about that? Yeah, I'm not sure I know exactly what that means. Um, but it's I, I do like that. And if I take a stab at it, it the, the senses are important here with poetic knowledge. Senses important. We are sensory creatures. And we are we were made out of the dust. Um, that's important to remember. So, and, and it really, really is, I, I, I really want to stress that because modern education, again, because out of our reliance on analogies of technology, we have convinced ourselves that humans are just walking computers, walking robots. We are abstraction machines, that we, our, our rationality, our reason exists purely in the abstract realm. Our material bodies are just a happy accident. And that is the underlying problem because why do you think that there's so many people today who are rejecting scientific notions of what, it, what a body is, are rejecting scientific notions of what a man is or a woman is? It's because our education has told them that those things don't matter only our reason matters and our intellect and the two are not connected. Again, it's this idea that a Cartesian split between mind and body. And I don't want to get into all of that, but it seems to me evident that these are connected and related, that the, yeah. these, these community and social issues that we're seeing um, surrounding the body and, and men and women and what those things are, what they mean, are related to the fact that we have displaced the importance of the material world. And so I don't have to honor this. I mean, God calls it a temple, but we don't call it that. It's just a house for a computer. And that's no good because it is a temple. And if we don't treat it as such, then we don't have to respect it, right? And I don't have to follow rules of what I should do with my body and with whom should I do with it, you know, these things. So again, I'm not going to go any farther than that, but it seems important. Well, you know, I, yes, I, I we won't go too, too far off on a tangent, but I, I think what you're bringing up is incredibly valid because I think many parents look at the landscape of these modern problems and issues we're having, like you said, issues surrounding the body and, and they're like, how how did they get there? Like, how did they arrive at that moment at 14 where they're having these questions and this confusion? And 
to think that maybe the answer is as simple as mothers and fathers snuggling their children more and giving them more physical experiences of love and eye contact and giving them stories uh, that honor the material world and help them to see it with the eyes to perceive the goodness of it instead of uh, living in a unreal world of too much television, too much screen time, whatever it might be, never getting outside, (laughs) you know, all these things that together have reduced and devalued the material physical world and have elevated this, what isn't even, you know, to your point at the very beginning of this episode, you were talking about uh, this being about perceiving all of life as spiritual, but they've Mm -hmm. been robbed of that, even as they've been sold a bill of goods that life is this, like the fake world is the real world, or you can, you know, your mental world maybe would be a better way of saying it. The intellectual mental world is more real than your body. And yet through that, they have been robbed of the spiritual sense of the world at all. And it's just, it, it is tragic. And, you know, I think there is much hope though, when we recover a sense of something like poetic knowledge to realize that even these little things, you know, I think this even connects to why so many moms today don't understand the value of the early years mm-hmm. uh, of their own work. There's a lot of, you know, m- women who deal with depression and all sorts of things, because in their mind, it's like, I'm just cooped up at home, feeding people and changing diapers. And like, that's not important work. And yeah. yet it's because of this poetic knowledge, this sensory emotional life of filling their senses with your love as a mother that you can give them from from their earliest days, this sense of security and safety and connection to the world and to reality um, that ultimately is going to pave the way for them to grow in more knowledge later. But yes, I think that's, that's exactly right. And it reminds me of a, of a quotation I read recently from a monk who said that childcare is the most beautiful prayer. And I just love that because it illustrates something exactly what you said. It's a real problem and a real concern and anxiety. And, and so when I meet, what I'm trying to say is that I want to recognize the validity of that anxiety and those feelings in recognizing that a lot of moms are taken for granted uh, and that they think that their work is like you said, they're, they're just become, you know, I'm the person who makes food and I'm the person who cleans up after you and I make sure that your room's tidy and I make sure you get to your fun things on time, but I don't ever get to do fun things, right? And you're just constantly overworked and undervalued and underpraised. And that happens, it's real. But it's important to recognize that, like you said, it isn't unimportant work. It's not just the daily grind, it is a prayer. And I think that going back to what I was talking about at the very beginning of this idea of sacred time, of setting, of recognizing that there is such a thing as sacred time, as, as eternal time, divine time, there's also sacred space and sacred matter. And that we need to, and poetic knowledge, I think, is the encapsulation of all of those things. This idea that we need to create sacred spaces if we don't have them, and we need to see sacred spaces when they're there. And so recognizing that there's going to be mornings when you're going to try to get up before your kids because you need that time alone, that's a sacred time. Sometimes that gets interrupted. <laughs> and Sometimes like when there was a time change that's waking up all the children. <laughs> oh, man, that's annoying. 
So <laughs> that happens though, what should we do? Do we despair or do we try to figure out how to harmonize them into that sacred time, right? And creating that sacred time together in that sacred space. And so I'm a big believer in boundaries that one of the biggest things for little children, one of the main things that they need to learn in life, this is the parent's primary responsibility more than anything else, is that all you're doing is teaching them boundaries. That's it. And then what they do within those boundaries, or if they cross them, is something that they have to reckon with as individuals, right? And it's exactly what God did in the Garden of Eden. He gave them the whole garden and created a boundary. Do not touch this one tree. And then Adam and Eve exercised their free will, ate of the tree, and then they had to deal with the consequences of it. But all God did was create the one boundary and establish that so that harmony was established. So boundaries, rules, are not bad. And when parents make rules, sometimes we think we're being bad guys by making rules. And sometimes the kids think we're being bad guys by making the rules. But we're, in reality, what we're trying to do is just establish the walls in which the garden resides and outside is the wilderness that we're trying to protect them from, you know? And eventually they're going to go out there. So often I think it comes down to us as parents having it sorted in our own mind what our motivation is because if we are saying no from selfish motives of, you know, I don't want, you know, we're saying no to the snack because I don't want to get off the couch. Well, then we kind of are being the bad guy. But when we're saying no to the snack because – we know that in 30 minutes is lunchtime and you will right. fill up on an empty carbohydrate granola bar and then not be interested in your nutritious lunch. Well, actually I'm saying this no so that it is for a better yes. Yes, and, exactly. you know, it's just a subtle difference that I think could re- alleviate a lot of guilt if we knew in our own minds, no, I really am doing, if I'm doing what's best for my child to use your, your point about the garden, there was one tree of no surrounded by a ton of trees of yes. Mm-hmm. And so creating environments where the yeses are to point them to the good and even our noes are to point them to a better good. Yes. Yeah, I love that. And I think what that example you just said is a, is a good illustration. And I, some might scoff at this because it might sound like I'm taking it too far, but I don't really think I am. It's laying that, fr- that framework and that foundation early on. You know, you're saying no to the body in the sense of no to these snacks now for a better yes, which is dessert or dinner, dinner and then dessert, whatever, <laughs> dessert for dinner. Uh, <laughs> and then which translates to if they fully, if they understand it and it's taught, you know, incarnationally over time, then eventually that will translate to, I'm going to say no to this person to save myself for marriage, right? Which is a more beautiful gift. So that's, that's the idea that you're, re- you're creating these boundaries exactly as you said to say no to now for a better yes later. And it is a better yes. It really is. And yeah, you know that so so much of the early years is if we could just remember where we want to go with them. Like you said, we want to have led our child to the place that as a teenager, when they're get having that more and more opportunities to make their own decisions, they're going out into the world, whatever it might be, that we will have prepared them in their bodies, how to be ordered rightly. You know, we're all sinners, so not that they will arrive at teenagers in in a state of perfection, um, mostly because their parents are not in a state of perfection and will not have been able to do that. But at least giving them, like you said, a foundation of 
I'm, I've learned in these little ways how to say no to my body. So now I'm equipped for these much more challenging ways of saying no to my body. Yes. Um, and just painting that, but not it just being a no. You know, I think yes. sometimes I, I was actually talking to an older mom yesterday and she was talking about how she regrets how much she spent her time saying no and mm. how little time she focused on. But what's the like, what's the positive vision here that I'm supposed to be giving them? And, and I think that's really profound because it, it, it could be all too easy as a mom to be constantly focused on all the things we're telling our kids they can't do or mm -hmm. no, no to this, no to that. And yet really the focus within classical education and just as Christians ought to be the kingdom of God, the good life, this fullness of life that is ours in Christ that comes through, yes, often self-denial and the denial of our passions and our flesh, but um, towards a greater good. That's exactly right. And I think that transitions well to, to mimetic learning and teaching, which is that the next step then is if through poetic knowledge, you're understanding the concrete nature of children and their learning and the fact that they need sacred time and sacred space, then you quickly and inevitably leads to this next sense of learning, which is through imitation. And again, like I said, it kind of, they, they coincide, they happen simultaneously, but in, a, in another sense, they, they sort of happened later because mimetic learning is also in many ways concerned with the abstract. It's getting more abstract. And so you're reading a story about a hero like Aeneas or Lucy or, you know, any other story you can think of, the little prince, right? You're reading these stories and these are these heroes and then your children want to embody them. And that's the idea. And I love that word embody. You're taking this idea and you are putting it in and making it your own. And that's something that mimetic learning is chiefly concerned with is, and it can exist with ideas and it, it can exist on a more practical level, just with skills. You know, you can, in the classroom when you're teaching similes, how to write one, you want to learn through types. That is how children learn. So at Circe, one of our main curricula is the lost tools of writing. And that is how it's written and how it's taught is mimetically. So you're learning to write well by imitating good writers. And that's, that's the foundation for all of that. So it's, it's not just in this sort of idyllic realm of ideas and fairy tales, although that stuff's very good. It can also be extremely practical in the classroom. So, but I, the principles inform the practical. Principles inform the practical. And so we need to think about this idea of, um, you know, what Christ says, which is to be like him and to follow him. And so we follow him by imitating him. And you see that so poorly with parents <laughs> because we're not good at that. Like you said, you know, we, we struggle with being in a state of perfection, you know, and it's, it's so hard. It's okay though. You know, they're going to imitate us and sometimes they're going to do bad things because we do bad things, but they'll also do good things if we do good things and, and try to provide them a feast of good things. We do our best, you know. <laughs> I think I never understood the verse where Paul talks about women are saved by childbearing. And I never understood that. And mm. then becoming a mother and suddenly realizing I would have had no idea what I needed to be saved from if I hadn't had children to show me. You know, yes. I was pretty spiritual.
spiritual until I had children to show me what I look like when I'm, you know, sleep deprived and just forgot to eat till 2 p.m. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah, it's it's so hard. Um, and they're, these they are little mirrors up to our humanity. And it's so it's so beautiful and precious. Um, but, you know, it's it's sort of like the I think a lot of any pastor or priest would tell you this, you know, you pray for, oh, Lord, just grant me patience. And then he gives you lots of opportunities to learn patience. And then you don't, you don't ever use it to learn patience. You just keep being impatient. And then you think, God, why won't you just give me patience? He is giving you. <laughs> like, that's how he gives it to you. chances here. <laughs> exactly as, right. And suddenly we hear our own voice coming out as we're like saying to our kids, how many times have I told you? God's like, right. hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, funny how that works, right? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, it's so we're given these opportunities to learn it and uh, to practice these virtues. And But the thing is, is we, our children, our students, they will be given these opportunities. And if they haven't been examples, if they haven't been, not, if they haven't been given examples on how to deal with those opportunities, then the, it's going to be more difficult for them. And that's why we give them stories of heroes. And so going back to, I think, something you said, which is that early on, we need to be laying that foundation. And that we, classical, this is another thing that really bugs me about modern education is that if you look at the average modern educational system, I would say they, in all honesty, actually believe that education begins probably in middle school. Ironically, they make their kids go when they're like three years old, you know, to pre-K. And then, you know, so they're making them go in the classroom too early, but they don't really know how to deal with little kids because they don't understand, one, poetic knowledge. Two, they don't respect them. And so they just think of them as little animals, and which they aren't. And so they really believe that education happens far later. And I think classical educators need to be cognizant of that and wary that we need to remember that because look, it's so much easier to do school with a teenager who can discuss ideas and debate with you and he can read or she can read, you know, Plato and Shakespeare with you and act it out and talk about the ideas, all this stuff. And that's so fun. That's so exciting. And so then our minds, classical education, we're like, oh, yeah, the classics, the great books. Yeah, it's all in high school. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just our poor little ones are left behind because they can't read. And if they can, they can't read Plato, nor should they be reading Plato. (laughs) That's the other question. Um, My daughter picked up Gilgamesh the other day. She's like, can I read this aloud to you? And I will confess I have not read it yet. So I was like, sure, go ahead. Like, she's eight years old. And we started, Mm -hmm. and we got to a point suddenly I was like, and we're stopping. Okay, we're going to (laughs) save this for later. (laughs) Like, see, this is why you have to (laughs) pre-read. That's exactly right. That's a, yeah, that's a, uh, that's a, uh, a PG one for sure. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so it's just, you do, you do have to do that. And. But it's just, anyways, it's it's important to remember that our little ones, again, they can understand ideas very well. We just have to remember how to meet them where they're at, which is what Christ did. So then I'm thinking about everything you're saying, and it's all so good. So would you say the other modes come into play with the early years 
um, as far as beyond mimetic? I, I do. I'll just very briefly discuss those because I, I do think they do, but not extensively. So I will, because uh, they, they, again, they begin to become more dealing with more the, of the abstract and little children don't deal with the abstract as much as they deal with the concrete. So, but that doesn't mean they can't. And it's actually very important to exercise these things. So dialectic is another thing. And, and I, I said this in my thread, but it's a thread, so you can't put a lot of detail in. Um, it's not just sitting around a classroom table and having a seminar style discussion. It can take that form. But dialectic or Socratic teaching and learning is fundamentally about a the metanoia, which is this turning back from false belief or opinion and trying to orient yourself toward the truth. And that comes through discussion because it's impossible if you're just lectured at to wrestle with an idea and try to under to critique oneself and the idea and wrestle with it to try to find out what the truth is. So any good therapist and counselor is going to say, oh, you know, in marriage, when you're talking with your spouse, it's you and her versus the problem, not you versus her, right? And it's very good advice because it's actually dialectic. That's what the person is describing. Um, <laughs> it can just be a little sentimental, but it <laughs> is very true. It is about truth. That's the third thing that you're trying to get to. And you have your ideas about it, and he has his ideas about it, right? And so you're wrestling to try to get to the truth. So that's what dialectic is primarily concerned with, and it takes its best form in conversation. Little kids can do that. You can have yeah. that. And I think it's really so important that you're asking your kids, don't always tell them the answer. Don't always do everything for them. Watch, let them struggle to put their shoes on, recognizing they're going to put them on the wrong feet every single time, even though you told them that that's not how you do it. <laughs> they're just going to keep doing it. But we have to let them because if we just constantly jump in, then they don't have the dialectical experience. They just have it. It's like lectures. They just get it told at them. And then you have no way of knowing if they're actually wrestling with it. And so that happens in physical processes, but it also happens with ideas. And so if your child says something like, mommy, why is the sky blue? My first reaction would say, well, why do you think it is? Mm, because I want to, I want to hear what they have to say. And I want to hear how their mind thinks through a question like that. More often than not, they're just going to drop it because they're just talking. They don't actually care at all what the answer is. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's okay. And then you can just move on with your day. Um, but if they are, by asking, you'll actually know if they're interested. And if they really are interested, but you wouldn't have known if you just told them the answer, you know? I mean, unless they're a particular. I think this comes down to our conception of what a mind is, because I mm. think the modern education system treats brains like buckets that mm -hmm. we're just inserting the right facts into, the right information, as opposed to this living thing that will grab onto some things and not grab onto others. And so kind of to your point about questions, though, it's, it's this mental, spiritual muscle that until we allow it to be exercised in, these, in using these opportunities, 
we don't know, we can't tell as the parent how strong it is. We don't know really how they're thinking through things. And just even as you're saying that, I'm like, yeah, my eight-year-old, I mean, we are, especially I think this year, she went from seven to eight. There's been a lot of conversations happening and a lot of things, just spiritual questions in her school lessons, just about life as we're driving. I've heard parents of teenagers say, oh, the car is like the prime place to get to hear from your teenager. I'm like, well, my daughter's eight and I'm already having like by the conversation she's wanting to have. Um, So yeah, it's, it's so true. But like you said, even, I think, even as you're talking, I'm thinking, because metanoia, is that repentance? Is Mm -hmm. that what that word, is that the same word? Okay. Yeah. So I'm thinking like, how often, even as we hear our children talk, that we might realize that they were believing something totally false and not mm-hmm. true. And just, but like you said, instead of just telling them you're wrong, getting to have a conversation with them, oh, why do you think that? Okay, that's really interesting. Have you considered this over here? You know, letting it be more than just let me drop the information in your bucket brain that you need to know so that later we can have the stamp of, oh, I taught you that. That's right. It's much more, it should be much more organic and humane and natural than that. Yes, that's so good. It's exactly right. And I think that's it's a, an apt analogy for what modern education thinks about the human brain, that it is a receptacle for knowledge and facts. And that knowledge is, is really, I like what you said about a muscle. One of the brain is a physical muscle, but it also, a muscle requires work. It can grow or it can shrink from disuse. And that is a much more whole understanding of what knowledge is, that it's something that we can, I mean, how many things have we forgotten? I mean, countless things. And yet, I'm still smarter today than I was 10 years ago. How is that possible? I've forgotten more things than I learned when I was in high school, right? So what does that mean? Well, it serves your point that the whole idea of a bucket full of, you know, knowledge pebbles is probably not a very effective analogy or true for what it really is. And it has much more to do with the fact that we have to wrestle with these ideas and we have to work with them and strengthen the muscle. And I think that leads to the final one, which is not, it's interesting, and I'm so glad you invited me on here to talk about this because now I get to talk about my idea. Um, (laughs) It's not talked about a lot in classical education. Um, specifically because it's, well, I should be careful about what I say here to not offend anybody. There's a certain, there are certain Christian understandings that understand the spiritual life and spiritual knowledge as something that is distinct from merely my use of reason, merely the rational part of me. That's an important distinction. And in certain Western understanding, those two are, those things are considered the same. And so sometimes you'll hear, well, what does it mean to say that we created in the image of God? Well, it means that we have reason. And I don't think that that's a fully accurate answer, although it to some degree is true because we have more reason than, than, you know, a dog. Um, But it has far more to do with the fact that it means that we have a noetic understanding, which the animals don't do. And that is our ability to, which is what St. Peter says in his epistles, which is that we can become like God. 
And then St. Paul says in 2 Corinthians that the more we knowledge we have of the Spirit of God, the more knowledge we are given. And a lot of the early church fathers and saints of the church throughout history have talked about this idea and have illustrated it in the stories of the lives of the saints and others that there is a kind of knowledge that is gifted to those who dedicate their lives to prayer, who just completely give empty themselves out, kenosis, the Greek for that, empty themselves out and let Christ and his spirit come. And then that gift is the gift there's a knowledge that comes as a gift from that and so i've called that contemplative knowledge is that the right word for it i don't really know because i've never seen it really anywhere as a sort of categorical term um so you know you can help me out here i, I don't know if contemplative is the right word for this but do you kind of understand what i'm getting at I, th I think so. Um, I, you know, I like that you used the word contemplation because it, it kind of connects to something I've been thinking about that as moms, like you said, I mean, this is true for men and women, but thinking of moms, how our life is to be this life of prayer mm -hmm. and how in, in many ways our life is uniquely suited to that mm -hmm. for the very reason that oftentimes our hands are busy, but our minds are not yes. right. Like if we're holding someone or, um, you know, nursing, whatever. These are things that are happening where, you know, my toddler, we moved a couple months ago. And since we moved, she needs a lot of help falling asleep. So for about an hour, most nights I'm sitting in a dark room, holding, rubbing her back, just trying to soothe her, let her know she's safe, all of those things. Um, and I was pretty grumbly about that until my husband reminded me, here's your prayer rope, babe, get in there, enjoy your time to pray and we can take Love turns. It. So, and That's so, you know, but suddenly it was that reminder of like, oh yeah, like, this is about a life of prayer. And so to your point about this contemplative um, existence that we can have where we're having our children and bringing them into it. Yeah, I mean, I feel, and even just with sympathy. Okay, so sympathy, we're trying through our living our own contemplative life of prayer and, and love. I mean, I think of how love is so tied up in all of this because that's how it's God's love flowing through us and our love for him and his world that we are getting to have our children participate in that love. Um, yeah. I don't know. Does that make it is, is that connected to what you're trying to describe? It is. That's really good. Yeah. And it, and it connects to the earlier stuff about sacred time and sacred space. Right. I mean, you're, and I think it connects very closely to something that Taylor says um, and uh, Joseph Pieper in his book, leisure, the basis of culture which is that and I think what you're describing is something like leisure, which is this idea. It's not slothful. It's not like Netflix or, you know, a cruise vacation, but which isn't necessarily bad. Sorry. I shouldn't have called a vacation slothful. Um, we need rest. from. We, we need relaxation. <laughs> yeah. But think about this. I mean, how often do we as Christians complain about having to go to church on Christmas day? Right it's a fundamental misunderstanding of what a holiday is, of what a holy day is. It is a day of rest. It is a day of leisure, but it's, it's a spiritual work. And that is really fundamentally important is that we need to give space for spiritual work and prayer like you're describing. And you can find that in the little things like soothing your child at night or in the early morning, you know, with a cup of coffee. And, you know, um, 
in all kinds of places. It can be while you're doing the dishes. It can be while you're, you know, pulling weeds, etc. So those, I think that's exactly right. And the other sort of main main thing, and I think this is it's very closely connected to poetic knowledge because it's not quantifiable. Contemplative knowledge or spiritual knowledge, whatever you want to call it, is not quantifiable in sort of a, you know. I mean, nearly none of this stuff is, not according to modern educational assessment metrics, you know. It's it's quantifiable in the sense that Christ has, a good she beareth good fruit, right? That's the, that's the assessment we're looking for. The main assessment, fundamentally, if I could exhort any classical educator, is well done, thou good and faithful servant, right? That's the assessment we're looking for. If we get that, ugh, you know. So that's all we're looking for. That's all. That's it, right? It's so easy. That's it. Um, <laughs> so far, Alec. <laughs> yeah, but it's so contemplative spiritual knowledge. It's it's a kind of knowledge that is gifted to us, and we we see it in. We all know we can think of a person who we thought, "Wow, that is a spiritual person," a woman or a man. You know, it might be your pastor. It might be old lady at church it might be your dad you know i don't know it, it can be a lot of different people and you've met them and you can see it right you know exactly what christ is talking about a good tree beareth good fruit you can see it in that person it just spills out the spirit of god within them it's something you have to work it's the hardest of all of them you have to work so hard at it which is why in throughout church history we've had people who decide to just leave everything else behind and become monks and nuns because it's the hardest work to do to just live a life of prayer. Um, but the so gift- do you think this is a distinct thing from, because as you're saying this, and on the one hand, I, I uh, like you said, thinking of the lives of the saints or the church fathers, I can imagine the part you're talking about of what the hard, how difficult it is and the, you know, the average person never achieves that. At the same time, I think of how children there's something about children that is inherently prayerful yes. and that they just, they desire to participate in prayer and to, you know, not all the time. I'm not, I don't want to paint this picture like that, like a child is born a little saint who just, you know, loves to sit, sit praying all the time. But I don't know. I've just had, there's been moments where I've seen that in my children, that a longing for that and a desire yeah. of let's just keep praying. Let's just keep praying. And yes. as the adult, you're sitting there like, well, I kind of have to like go clean up dinner, <laughs> whatever. But, and yet they kind of connected to what you were talking about, them not having a sense of time passing. They can get caught up in desiring to just have it continue. Yes. Is, that, is that the same thing or is that a different type of thing? I think that's, that is the same thing. And it's, it's what I'm talking about. I mean, it's a confession. I did it last night. I was yesterday morning. I can't remember. It all blurs together. Um, but the girls were in the living room. And they weren't doing what they're supposed to do. They were supposed to be cleaning up, and they weren't. And a um, there's a fire station not far from our house. We live in a little rural town downtown. And the fire, I could hear the ambulance or the fire truck going by on the main street. And I that right at that moment, I had turned uh, to snap at <laughs> my six year old to to clean up and. As I'm snapping at her to clean up, I can see her crossing herself because she heard the ambulance drive by. And in that moment, I was struck by my lack of humility 
and the beauty of that, of that spiritual moment. That wasn't for me or anybody else. She just did it for her, for God, right? How beautiful is that? So you're absolutely right. Children are extremely prayerful. And I'm going to pick on one little thing you said, which is you said that the average person can't do this. Mm. Yes, they can. And they do all the time. Millions of us do it every day. And I'm going to guess, I'm going to guess, and I do mean this, that when the Christ comes, we're going to, if Lord willing, we get to heaven, what we're going to see is a lot of homeschool moms up there because of the good work that they did on this, on this earth. You know, child care is the most beautiful prayer. So, and we'll see a lot of children too. So anyways, it's and a worthy pursuit to, to dedicate your life to, to prayer and fasting and kind of letting the, setting the world aside. But there's also so many of us who do it, um, who live in the world, and that's what we're called to do. We're called to tend the garden. The first people on the planet, that's what they did. Husband and wife raised their children, called to tend the garden. That's exactly what we're doing. So, Lord willing, we can I love do that it. Reminder. Yeah, that we're, we're not called to different spiritual lives. We're all called to the same spiritual life and to live it in the place God has put us. Yes. That is that is very, very true. I love that. Uh, well, I could think of a million more questions to ask you, but I think we're out of time. But thank you so much for coming on and just, I hope, filling these mothers' ears with beautiful ideas that are inspiring to them, to give them a vision, even if there are things that we talked about today that it's like, I have no idea about that, or that's so different from how I've ever heard anyone talk. I hope it has given them a hunger to know more and a hunger to see a vision of what a special and unique and precious time the years they have at home with their children, even before their school age, what they can be. So uh, thank you so much for everything you said. I'm just so thankful that you, that you were here today. Well, thank you, Amanda. It was awesome to be on here and I really appreciate the time to speak to you. And I'll just say that this is these kinds of ideas that we talk about all the time at Circe. So come to our conferences. We have three of them every year and or reach out to us and we'd love to, you know, just continue to be a part of the good work you all are doing. So. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because I will just reaffirm that, that Circe, from afar, I've never gotten to attend any conferences, but um, my husband and I both just love the webinars, the books you guys provide. Um, yeah, there are so many great resources there. So if you are just a mom wanting to grow and know more, just head to the Circe website. There are articles, there are blog posts, like I said, books, webinars, conferences, so many good things. And I have never had a dud, never had a dud yet. So it'll all nourish your soul and feed you and inspire you in this wonderful work of motherhood. But uh, do you have any final thoughts for us, Alec, before we uh, end for the day? Yeah, I, I have a quote to read. And I guess it might sound a little coming out of nowhere, um, but I think it's, <laughs> it's deeply connected to this ideas, to the ideas of just living in the, in the real world of, of, be, of the connecting mind and body of being in the, you know, thinking like a child and, and a poetic knowledge. Um, it's from Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. And he, he says, he says this, there are two spiritual dangers in not owning a farm. One is the danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery 
and the other that heat comes from the furnace. Thank you for joining us today as we sought to participate in the great conversation. You can find our show notes for today's episode, including all the quotes and book titles mentioned by heading over to the Wonder Years podcast Substack. If you have any questions regarding today's episode, we would love to hear from you at wonderyearspodcast at gmail.com. In addition, we would so appreciate it if you could take a moment to leave us a rating and review. Finally, you can find both of us on Substack. My Substack is titled A Classical Woman and Brooks is A Pilgrim's Way. Brooke is also on Instagram at her handle underscore Brooke Johns. Cheers, friends. Until next time.